Okay, so things are a little bit different this week because we have been on vacation because our host Patrick Pittman is in Australia or in transit, I think, um, because it's a new year. And we're back now after about a month, uh, refreshed. Yes? Oh, yes. Of course. Uh, yeah. And um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting in for Patrick this week. So here we go. This is Noonmark, a podcast from Make Ready. So this week we're talking about public space, connectedness, and disconnectedness, and what about different public spaces makes us feel different senses of civic responsibility. Plus, in the near past, we take a look at storytelling in the marketing sense. Here, as always, we have Lou-Jacques Darvaux. Hi, LJ. Hello, Anna. And John De Palma. Hi. Hello. Oh. Oh. Nailed that. And Eli. Oh. Hi. Oh. Uh, of oh. course, me, I'm Anna Duckworth, and this is episode 15. We've been talking a lot lately about public space, in particular about each of our responsibilities and duties when out in public and the effects of technology on that, but also how certain visible or invisible systems govern our behavior in those spaces, rippling out to affect our experiences of the public space and conversely, the public's experience with us. Our level of awareness in public certainly has the potential to change how we experience an environment. We might miss a beautiful piece of public art, we might miss a question from a lost tourist, an offer to eat a tasty snack, or pick up a free magazine. But there are certain technologies that we sort of lean on. It's become very normal to pop your headphones in as soon as you enter into the public sphere, and we're wondering what what are the costs of that? What's at stake? And um, beyond those minor transactions that we lose what else is lost? LJ, you have a certain relationship with your headphones. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about that? Just before the Christmas break, um, I was in California. And of course, the fresh in everyone's mind are the San San Bernardino um, uh, events. And as I was walking with my headphones, just in Santa Monica or wherever I I was when I I was there just before the holidays, I started wondering or having this sense of a bit of an unease about unease about the fact that we're all sporting headphones and we're becoming a little bit unaware of what's going on around us. And while I'm not expecting necessarily as and no one ever does, and I'm pretty sure um, this week uh, with the events in uh, in um, Istanbul, I mean, it can all events, uh, terrorism uh, can happen anywhere, any place now. Uh, Everyone can wake up one morning and decide that they're going to uh, go out and uh, create um, uh, terrorism. So there's there's a number of things that are bouncing in my head. There's this obsession with headphones and disconnecting from the real world. What does that mean in terms of our responsibility and our civic responsibilities? Um, the This idea of micro-terror, this, these mini moments of terror that you experience in our daily lives. And I, I was, I, I found myself kind of thinking about if I'm, if I'm walking around with these headphones, am I, am I, risking more something if something happens can i react can i help should i be aware of someone potentially coming you know or or uh so that was kind of um how i thought about it and then an article um a few articles popped in terms of microterrorism and this collective obsession that now everyone has when you're in airports in other public places people are starting to be um, uh, aware of what's going on, 
there seems to be something going on here and um and um I'm wondering about yeah the the, the fabric of uh, this system that we call the, the the civic system of of helping a fellow citizen of being aware what is the responsibility that yeah. we have to be yeah. aware I think that there's you know the extreme cases of terrorism and if everyone is has their headphones on and they're not really uh, you know engaged in their surroundings let alone looking at their screens right which is the, the more common uh, scapegoat I think that even in more everyday circumstances when people Uh, have their f headphones on, they're walking down the street, they're not really available to their fellow citizen uh, to be asked directions, to be asked the time, uh, you know, to be, uh, you know, asked for change by the homeless, really any kind of interaction. And I think that there's an irony in feeling like you're connecting what, you know, be it a podcast uh, acoustically or uh, social media on your screen, when really you're also or at the same time also kind of withdrawing from your immediate community. And I think that, you know, as as with other things that we, we, we've discussed, I think that, you know, we need to find a balance between our physical lives and our digital lives. And I think that right now, you know, the digital is, is eating everything up. It kind of makes me think of that. This is a little bit off track from terrorism, but it makes me think of that, like uh, that dating app, that Happen one, where uh, it was called Happen. Where it, With no e. it allows, right, of course, no vowels, um, where you have to, or you're allowed to message people who are like in your immediate vicinity. And that's or people who you've crossed paths with. And it tells you how many times you've Over a certain paths. amount of time, yeah. yeah. And so, but it, it goes back to what you're saying about like, right. does it still you know, exist? Oh, yeah, oh, it's yeah. the new one. It's, yeah, oh, it's yeah? pretty new, yeah. But it's just, it, it goes into that like about connecting. Why are you looking at me? And not connecting. <laughs> I don't use it. <laughs> you should. Yeah. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, that just gears <laughs> into your point about. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a sad state where we're we're so timid uh, to interact with our immediate environment that we need a notification on our phone to give us permission right. to talk to somebody. And right? so the same thing is true, or not the same thing is true, but it also makes me think of like in headphones um, when say you're on a plane and you know they're making announcements. You mentioned the airport. Uh, you, they're making announcements, you know, we're going to encounter some turbulence or whatever. You have your own headphones on. You don't hear that. But if you're plugged into their system, you do. And so, right. uh, you know, pe previously people say we're listening to the radio in their car. So they kind of were like uh, participating locally. But when you put, when you create your own like media environment that's specific to you, um, you can kind of selectively ignore certain factors of your public life or of your immediate context. So do you feel like we we all do have a certain civic duty or responsibility though to be available? Like is that is that the sort of dilemma? You know, I, I, I'm not so concerned about whether or not we have a moral responsibility. I just simply think it's a shame. Um I mean, you have that that happen example. I also, uh, if I may tell your story, uh, uh, Anna, about your sure. bike being stolen the other day, right? I mean, you just left it outside a store, popped into the store really quick, and then you saw a guy get on it, run away, and you yelled for help. And when I, you know, when you told me that story, I felt like that was something out of a uh, 19th century novel. Someone going, right. "Stop, thief!" Right? I mean, <laughs> it's funny, but I think that's weird for me. You know, it's weird that I think that that's so antiquated, right? Right. You know, that someone would get. You know, nowadays I just go, "Well, you know, file a report," and you know, we don't talk to each other that way. Or mm -hmm. you know, public scenes like that—that's mm -hmm. we're beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a shame that we're not ready to help each other out. 
It didn't um, even occur so to me to, fi- to yeah, file also, a police report. Yeah, and I think a more which local. Is where yeah, I'm at. Yeah, I think a, a, a more local uh, example is. I mean, Anna, you when you came over to where John and I were sitting not too long ago, you noticed that John and I will talk to each other via Slack, even though we're effectively sitting next to each other, <laughs> right? Because th- th- there's a certain ease with it, but there's also um, creepily a kind of familiarity um, and dependency that we're get developing with internet communication, right? We almost feel like real communication is so intimate, right? If somebody calls you up on the phone, you're almost like embarrassed or, or mm-hmm. you know, you caught off guard. Oh my God, you know, mm-hmm. even the voices become too direct. We need mm-hmm. mediated communication and that's scary. I don't like though that we like uh, blame ourselves or each other for this stuff as if like, oh, it's a failing and we're getting, we're becoming worse people and we need to really look up for one another. Like it's it's been uh forced on us like this protectivity and this like this need to like foster this like private space because we're like assaulted by you know brands and you know it's like hey sale come over here like you know some guy handing us a metro on the side of the streets Mm -hmm. like just please like give me my Mm -hmm. space and like you feel uh and then yes we end up adopting behaviors that then uh don't allow us to engage with other people but i don't think that that like as individuals, we would have a chosen that if it weren't for our like the the incitement or the the first steps by uh, you know people trying to sell stuff and take advantage and exploit the yeah. fact that we're in public and accessible in that way. I think it's good definitely to be able to determine the boundaries of your environment a little bit, but it also is dangerous. I mean, part of living in a community is the uh, kind of randomness or adventitiousness of uh life right i mean people can approach you ask you questions you can start a dialogue with somebody you hear things you see things that aren't in your control and i think that you know again we feel like we're connecting when we listen to our podcast or go on social media but we're also increasingly curating and customizing our own experience and that makes experience much more lonely because you only find what you look for or you, mm. you right you only see what you want to see and what mm. you're looking for um, it's or, the same you know, argument wh- that people have about like uh, you know curating your news sources. Like if you if you take the newspaper, you're going to come across stuff that you didn't want to see that you didn't have you don't have an interest right. in, but your ambient sort of awareness of it will be increased. And uh, like I don't think anyone would really argue that. Like it's not you know it, like generally yes like uh, we're trying to like at the starting we're trying to set up or talk about some sort of like uh, sense of p- a public space. Uh, some sense of community, you know, that's, these are good things. And then it's like, what, what are the forces that are reducing them, right? Like, uh, I don't think uh, uh, any of us would say that a, a lesser sense of public space or lesser sense of community is a good thing, right? So, and now it's like, well, what is it that, like, are we, are we really blaming our, uh, you know, our fandom of like certain podcasts? Is it really uh, headphones that are doing it? So there are implications. If if you're not going to rely on your fellow citizen for uh, potentially raising the flag on something that's wrong, and I, I, I always give this example of the Costco situation of mothers assembling or even potentially fathers, but it's, it happened to me more with mothers who are actually kind of you know if my kids are in the car and in the in the in the cart at costco for a little too long and and i'm not around which i love to do just to see how people react Mm -hmm. because i see them all the time you know and and between bananas and tomatoes or whatever and i like i know what's going on and then you start seeing you start seeing people uh, mothers typically 
sort of there's some sense of um, awareness and protection and it's 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 a natural system which is you know anti-fragile it happens you know you don't need to mm. call it you don't need to have you know it doesn't yeah, like go I'm out of battery none of us power would argue against that so like, then then is it isn't it strange though that people freak out when we start start talking about Pl uh, tracking and you know using the power of technology to also being able to have well, you know I there was an ep episode of of uh, was it 99% invisible about this you know these um these very precise satellite imagery mm. that can take pictures so you could say my car my bike was stolen you could call this service you know and they would have the the they could be able since they take one picture per second of very precise yeah, location they could be able to so say oh the guy cause, is already there. Doesn't that cause and then people are like oh my god no that's uh, totally impossible to even think about a world like that but, but i'm like well okay but how about a this? Well, like knowing that like it's not like the, these things are uh like, like i'm saying those things started people thinking like that like when we see security cameras everywhere and we've been raised with increasing amount of security cameras in our lives when someone is like you know, Anna's saying, help, someone stole my bike. And like, yeah, it's on a security thing somewhere. It, you probably have some sort of like a pin number on it. Like you'll get it back through these systems. If they, if they put in, if I learn about these like satellite systems that take photos of everywhere all the time or in, in London where every, all public spaces are on cameras, like, uh, you know, I, I can be more confident that will be solved and then I will be less inclined to help that uh, baby out. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then it just is self-accelerating. Because you would rely on the system. Yeah. And like, mm. you know. Well, that and then uh, it's further complicated by the fact that, you know, you're in danger as soon as you get involved, both from a legal standpoint and from like. Right. And so, safety. yeah, so it starts so before all technology systems. systems. just like. Yeah push you to to behave that way or to not behave or not respond. Yeah. But I mean uh, when people talk about civic responsibility to be engaged or alert or you know available to their fellow citizens they're talking about either uh mitigating like major risks in the case of like a terror attack. But the big thing is I think I see that, uh, that there's a real civic duty and responsibility to just show up as a human being every day in the world. And so everyone has, you know, a degree to which they can hide from that and wear their headphones or be in a bad mood and not go out or whatever. But you can't always refuse to contribute to the sort of flow of energy and exchange of views and perspectives and experiences in the world. I think that's the responsibility. Yeah, I agree, but also, and I think the it's even showing up and participating is one thing, but it's also part of the learning process, the constant learning and the tuning that we do as humans is because we have different senses and we pick up things that are very discreet, very subtle, and it sort of refines your understanding of where you are, where you live, how, you know, yeah, you know, picking up signals basically of of situations, and uh, that seems to be an important thing that I I would tend to think we might be losing with the 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 living in not in the real world, basically living inside our own uh, uh, you know uh, media uh, landscape, media you know uh, through through uh, headphones and whatnot. So I I you know. I, I, w I just wonder what we miss and, and eventually what is it that it, it piles up to, to become. That's a big question. I guess we'll all be paying attention.
time we take our little trip into the near past where we take a look at something that was at some point everything and is now perhaps still everything, but also perhaps nothing. This week's storytelling for brands, even this agency, it's a pretty good example, uh, the one for which we all work here, uh, is one that at some point claimed to tell brand stories. In fact, our name was Totem Brand Stories. Marketers then, should they all be fussed about the storytelling thing or where is that? Well, um, I was kind of wanted to talk about this because it seemed to be uh, you know, in the ether in a big way, brand storytelling, brand narratives a few years ago. And I hear it less now. I'm not sure that it's dead or if it's just kind of uh, evolved into something else. I mean, it's pretty abstract. I don't know if something, an idea can completely die. But, you know, I think that the benefits of brand storytelling had to do with the fact that, you know, you could you could uh, kind of convey to your audience or customers, you know, who you are, where you're coming from, where you're going, you know, kind of uh, providing people with a sense of purpose, a sense of growth, and I think also a kind of sense of coherence, right? Like this is who you are, what you're about. Um, And I think that that also allows you to be differentiated. Um, But I also think that um, there's been increasing skepticism about storytelling, uh, partly because I think it's hard not to see it as window dressing. Um, you know, you know what it should be is obviously kind of actually about what, wh- who you are and what you do. But I think that people can be skeptical of you trying to tell your own story because there's a weird conflation uh, that happens between it, when a brand tries to tell its own story. And the conflation is between being the writer and being the protagonist of the story, right? I mean, you are the story. Right. And you're trying to take the reins of the narrative and say what it is, but you don't get that power. Right. I mean, increasingly with social media, it's the audience that gets to tell the story. Right. It's they decide what your story is. You're the main character in the story. Um, so I think that there's a, a you know of, what, what brand produce in terms of stories is increasingly less about them and it's about current affairs or things that are happening in the world I mean, they're not talking they're even never mentioning their products and 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 uh, and what they're doing uh, mm-hmm. in many cases like narrative so, is a core component of it but it's not like storytelling kind of implies what Eli is talking about here which is like telling your brand story yeah. so like narrative is the important thing there to apply to other things mm-hmm. and, and yeah, yeah and it, I think it's and inher- that's, I think that's what we're talking about right yeah like I think it inherently um, makes people question the transparency of a company to say, to take, for a company in advance to take the reins on what its story is and, and dictate that story. I mean, I think that th- that's bad. I think a good version is to to kind of participate in the story, right? And kind of demonstrate your values, perhaps discuss them uh, via kind of very intelligent use of content, um, but to recognize that it's always a dialogue. I mean, this goes back to uh, the Clue Train Manifesto, John, which you showed me, which goes back to 1999, which talks about how markets are conversations that people are having about companies and that your brand story is what is the story that they're telling about you mm-hmm. and not the story that you're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's increasingly about participating in that story, I think, in tactful ways rather than telling it. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that uh, like uh, brands that they took that tack in the first place, right? That first they had to tell their own stories um, to kind of realize the value of narrative in communicating anything, right? Like, uh, like that just shows how, like, how selfish brands are, right? It's like you're trying to tell them the, the value of something that goes back as far as like human communication. And you're like, well, first try telling some stories about mm-hmm. yourself. You know, yeah. like like document like your your employees, like or like look at your your history, like your founding history. Those stories are common 
before like content marketing it was just like you know t- say the founding of your story and then tell like your your value proposition you can tell that as a story you know everyone uses your product x and like mm-hmm. you know we all use it in our lives you tell a story about where you have a problem that you have to solve mm-hmm. telling that as a story is useful to kind of get investors interested or consumers interested mm-hmm. uh, and then to kind of extend that to like brand marketing or content marketing it's like profile your and employees profile your yeah. uh, your factory like the story of the you know it always has to be about them for them to yeah. like f- think yeah. that there's any value it's almost at all. A, a transparency game but it's a little suspicious i think it's taken like i think now we're at a place where it's more subtle and graceful and interesting for uh, for everybody to consume you know like i don't i don't think that every brand should be to, be out there uh talking about what their history is because they're not all very interesting. Mm. And likewise, I don't really care what a lot of brands have to say about current affairs. Mm. But a nice thing for a brand to do is to add value for me, which is like, don't write about something that I'm going to read about in the New York Times. And don't tell me about like the history of your tractor because I don't care. But um, maybe you have a beautiful Instagram account and you're telling me the story um, visually, you know, by putting up beautiful photographs of the history of tractors. And so, and in that way, you're demonstrating exactly. your interests too, right? And exactly. you're building a community around shared values. And around farming or whatever the case may be. And so I think that's where we are now. But yeah. I guess this is the bigger question is about content marketing. Going back to that, because I think it's, you know, I don't think that you equated co- storytelling with content marketing or, or, or actually brands wanting to participate in the global conversation in, in whatever capacity. Yes, some people want to hear the story of the tractor. And I actually, I'm one of the person who would <laughs> want to know mm-hmm. the story yeah. of that John Deere tractor or whatever, mm-hmm. like, um, or, or, uh, or key management or whatnot. But I think storytelling is also maybe just a lens or a way of, of, of doing things, which I find sometimes is, is quite, can be quite good. Because if you think about an annual report, for instance, uh, an annual report, there's nothing that looks more than like another annual report than another annual report. If you use the storytelling, if I was just declaring this year, how about we use a more of a storytelling kind of approach to it? It could produce very nice results. Like it could be much more, there's a story that could be told about, hey, that was the year, this is what happened, and this right. is how we reacted, as opposed to just being a set of formulas that no one really understands except the analysts who are going to pick up this, but the scriptic language. And, and I you think, can describe that as a human approach, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think in many ways, storytelling, the um, 2009 version of it or 2008 where it was like story story first and it Our was story. this robotic language that was used in you know there was the seo language of just keywords mm-hmm. and then and it was like well well how about we make it more liquid and we kind of talk to real people as opposed to talking to the algorithm or the robots mm-hmm. the, that, that Google sends in the world to kind of uh, defi- decide what matters and what doesn't matter. And I was like, no, let's, let's try to create a direct relationship with people. And, and then that became sort of the big message of storytelling being an approach or uh, a cue to say, how about we do things different? And that was good because it, it triggered um a kind of uh set of uh, a chain of uh, consequences because then you needed to say well you know what are the elements of that story who tells it and then you look 
inside our organizations and there were nobody there were no journalists or there were no people equipped and there was no uh, you know some people might have different versions of the story inside a company and then that story would be super rich at the bottom and gets really diluted as you climb the ladder and then mm -hmm. you know at the CEO level was just no and and legal level was just like no those two words only on on the you know <laughs> skip all the rest right because you know we don't want to be sued or there want to be this and that I think that 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 is behind us and I think it's a good thing uh, but it's true that storytelling this kind of that concept I think was um, that's that got burned a little bit in it, but it, it was an important thing to to be a catalyst for change that be, for what became content marketing and then we could dis discuss content marketing for hours and hours in terms of where it's going and and uh and i'm sure we'll have uh, a chance to come back to that but uh yeah i think storytelling is a neat little thing that's part of the near past that that helped uh, us uh, unlock a little bit of the the, the language that corporations uh, were um, subscribed to that was just, you know, so dry. And, a little bit more humanity. Yeah. So now's the bit in the show where we turn to Eli to sort of summarize and pull out the nuggets from uh, our last 45 minutes of conversation. So Eli, take it away. Could you do that again in a kind of Australian slash Newfoundland accent? <laughs> it's just not the same. Just kidding. Um, okay, so there are three quick points I'd like to make about the first discussion we had about public spaces and the way we try to escape from those spaces through our technology, through headphones, uh, smartphones, things like that. So the first is a fear I have. It's also a speculation that one thing that we're doing when we plug in our headphones or look at our screens is that we're starting to um, chop up our uh, sensorial world. I think the word... Uh, is sensorium, which means the kind of your senses taken as a collective. And it's only through your senses as a collective that you can really say that you have an experience of a world, right? You don't, you don't just hear things. You don't just see things. You're constantly combining these things. You know, if you're a driver or a cyclist, you definitely know that, right? You're hearing cars as much as you're seeing them. And I think that when you uh, isolate the senses, as you do with a screen or headphones, your world starts to chop up in really weird ways. You're listening to music and you're walking down the street. What kind of world does that create for you? I think that there's interesting outcomes to that, but I also think that there are some lamentable ones. I think that you you no longer feel like you're in that in one world or the other. You're kind of just um, straddle, straddling the line. And then I think recently, you know, all the hubbub around virtual reality is a funny attempt to kind of reconstitute the sensorium, right? Because it's full immersion, but it's a reconstitution on the other side of the fence, right? It's a, it's a virtual reconstitution. It's no longer the real world. I mean, you're going to be completely useless as a citizen if you've got VR goggles on. So that's the, my first uh, reflection. Uh, my second one is, you know, we, we've mostly talked about... Uh, uh, escapism is a bad thing. Uh, kind of this digital escapism is a bad thing. LJ and I especially, I think John was perhaps more inclined to, to defend it. And there's one way in which I see it as something defensible. And that's that, um, you know, if you live in a small town or you live somewhere uh, uh, in a community where 
who you are or what you believe is not really supported. Um, you know, immersing yourself in a community beyond your physical community, your immediate community can be a really uh, liberating force. So there's escape in a good way, right? You're fleeing. So, you know, if you're just, for example, you know, uh, a young homosexual in a small town that doesn't uh, have a lot of tolerance for that, you discover that there are people uh, like you online that are supporting, supportive of your position, giving you advice. I mean, I think that that's, that's an important tool of liberation. Um, and then my third quick point is just that, you know, we, we um, can see what we've lost. It's harder to see what we're gaining, although I think John makes some good points about security uh, with technology everywhere. Um, but I think that there is no going back. So we can talk about it, wouldn't it be better if people didn't have their headphones and didn't look in their screens? But it's not going to happen. And uh, so I think that we can be a little nostalgic and we can reflect on what we've lost, but we also have to accept that we're moving forward. So that's the show for this week. Thank you to everybody. Noonmark's brought to you by Make Ready and the Alpine Review. We are produced by me and edited by Nick Jaworski. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher 2. Music comes from Southern Shores, made up of our good pals Ben Dalton and Jamie Townsend. You've been listening to Eli Bernstein, John De Palma, Louis-Jacques Darvaux, and me, Anna Duckworth. We're back in two weeks with Patrick. Thanks for listening. Now I